Um, so we are live now, uh, which is wonderful, and good morning. Uh, I know it feels a little bit earlier than usual, but this is this is the way clocks work, at least in most of the United States and Canada and um, select other areas. We know that other countries, Israel included, will have their time change later in the spring. Um, spring. Uh, but good morning and good evening, depending on where you are. Welcome back to Rabbi Silver's class on this uh, on Genesis on Genesis. Um, and to those of you joining us here on Zoom, uh, we very much encourage you to accept the invitation to become a panelist. That will let you in the room, uh, enable you to turn on your camera, which again we very much encourage. Um, but please do stay muted unless we are having a discussion period, time for question and answer. Rabbi Silver is very good about leaving plenty of time for discussion. Um, if you're joining us on Facebook Live, you can participate by putting questions and comments directly below the video in the comments section. And if you're joining us on Drisha Live, hello, we're glad that you're learning with us. Those on Zoom are also welcome to use the chat if you prefer to type out your questions or if you just want to write something down so uh, it's not forgotten by the time we get to question and answer. The text for this class uh, is available in your Tanakh, um, so you're welcome to have your preferred copy on hand. Otherwise, I will do my best to keep the text current on screen um, and pull up any supplemental text that Rabbi Silver might want to reference. But otherwise, good morning. We're very glad to be learning with you again. Rabbi Silver, please. Okay, thank you. Um, okay, uh, good morning, everyone. We are uh, up to the story of Dina, chapter 34. The end of chapter 33, Yaakov returns to Shrem. Yaakov enters the land, as we know, he confronts Esau, and he uh, succeeds, he navigates his way. Uh, on one hand, makes peace with Esau, on the other hand, he separates completely from Esau. Esau travels to Edom and uh, Seir. Yaakov comes back at the very end of chapter 33. Yaakov comes back whole, Shalem, and Shalem has multiple meanings. He had been wounded, maybe he's healed from the wound. Shalem, full, complete, in peace. He's made it back. In the very end of chapter 33, the very last uh, Pasuk, uh, he, well, he first he purchases a field. He buys a field, buys it from the, uh, we are told from, the sons of Hamar, the head of Shem, pays money for it, Meoxita, and he builds an altar. Really, he called it the God, God, the God of Israel. And that's a reference to the fact that he was told by this mysterious adversary in chapter 32 that no longer is your name Yaakov, your name rather is Israel, Israel. For you have struggled with humans and divine beings and prevailed. And this last verse of chapter 33 attests to the fact that Yaakov sees himself now as Israel and his God is the God of Israel. And he has in fact returned to the land and he has not only returned to the land, but he's made a purchase of land, which can be seen as a a uh, purchase that represents um, that represents 
uh, acquisition in the land. Uh, we, remind, we remind ourselves that in the covenant, there are three generations of suffering. The fourth generation shall return to the land. And the verb Lashuv is uh, directed very much towards Yaakov and Sefer Breshit, even though Jacob is third generation. But as we discussed this idea that Israel was born from Jacob and Israel was fourth generation. In any event, what Yaakov had promised to do when he made the vow back in chapter 28 is, if you bring me back in peace to my father's house, God will be my God. And as we explained it, uh, I will do something no one else has done. I will build the bayit, the, um, the house. And Yaakov's mission is to build the bayit. And Yaakov's promise was return, to return to Beit El. So it's interesting then that Yaakov does not go straight to Beit El. He has a stop. After he confronts Esau, he purchases uh, property in Shechem prior to going to Beit El. Shechem, of course, in the Torah has been the place of entry into the land for Abraham. And once again, the entry into the land on Yaakov's return but it is still interesting to note that Yaakov does not go straight to Beit El as he promised he would do. He will go to Beit El in chapter 35. He's instructed to go there in chapter 35. He returns to see his father at the end of chapter 35. But we take note of the fact that before that, he goes to Shechem and we have the story of Dina now in chapter 34. So in a certain sense, the story of Dina was surprised that the story of Dina is where it is, because it would have been seemingly more logical for Yaakov to, upon his return, to immediately fulfill the promise he made and to go see his father Yitzchak. And he promised to go to Beit El, which he does in 35. So we take note of that. And this raises a different question for us, which is, what is... What is the significance of the story of Dina altogether? Why is the story of Dina here? And I remember many years ago, there was a uh, call a conversation or whatever, a presentation. There was myself and Professor Kubel. He had come out with a book and um, his book, he put forward the thesis that, well, the idea that the Torah has been interpreted by the, he called it the ancients, and the moderns, and he presented different approaches of the ancient and the moderns. He, uh, he claimed that he was taking no particular position. He was just presenting two different ways. I thought it was, book was weighted very heavily towards the moderns, but in any event, so we were both asked to speak. It wasn't actually a debate. It was more of a, supposedly a conversation, but in the, on the jacket of the book, I spoke about the jacket of the book. The jacket of the book made the claim that the story of Dina is here. It's in the jacket of the book. The story of Dina is here, basically, because later on, Yaakov will condemn Shimon and Levi. In chapter 49, where he blesses all his children, he condemns Shimon and Levi, and that chapter 34 is there to validate the uh, critique of Yaakov in chapter 49. That's what it said on the jacket. He was reporting. That's what, quoting some moderns, I don't remember who these particular moderns were, but it's actually on the jacket of the book. And I took strong exception to that idea. 
first of all, I found it very difficult to believe that a story of 31 verses is there to validate uh, a uh, critique in chapter 49. I thought that was exceedingly odd. And secondly, I don't believe that the story of Dina is of, of minor significance within the Torah, within the Book of Breshit. And furthermore, on top of all that, the story of Dina is one of those foundational stories that is revisited by various other parts of the Bible. And I don't know how much time we're gonna spend on that, but so the story of Dina actually is a central story. It's one of the central stories of Satan Breshit, I would say. It is certainly not here only to explain Yaakov's condemnation of Shimon and Levi in chapter 49. So actually, what is the story of Dina about? And we will now begin our study of the story of Dina. We could spend a lot of time on this story because there are different, uh, different pieces of the Bible that actually pick up pieces of the Dina story and use it to tell their own story. So let's just begin. So we'll, we begin a little bit, and I'll stop for comments or questions. That's the first pasuk. So Dina, the daughter of, ya of Leah, and Leah had born to Jacob, went out to see, literally to see, and they say to visit, to see the daughters of the land. Uh, what's interesting here is, first of all, which is called Dina Batleo, which is interesting. And then Asher Yodav Yaakov, we know that Leah has one husband, Yaakov. So therefore, uh, obviously, it's Asher Yodav Yaakov. This is probably the reason, one of the reasons, that the Midrash uh, directs us to the story of Leah and Yaakov back in chapter. 30. And there we're told that Rachel was, has none of her own children, no biological children of her own. And in that uh, chapter, Ruben, the oldest son of Leah, finds these mandrakes, which are presumably some kind of fertility pill, gives them to his mother. Because Ruben already is getting involved in the struggles between his mother and his aunt, or his mother's sister. In any event, uh, so uh, Rachel says to Leah, give me some of those mandrakes. This is chapter 30, beginning in verse 14. And Leah says, what, you already took my husband. You want to take the mandrakes too? But that she means he loves you more than he loves me. And now you want to be the mother of his children too? That doesn't seem fair. We sort of have a, it's working okay for us now. He loves us both for two different, for different reasons. So Rachel says to Leah, okay, so you can sleep with him tonight if you give me the mandrakes. And so they have this arrangement. It's not just that one night. And Leah goes out to greet Jacob at night. This is found in chapter 30, verse number 16. Come to me tonight. I've rented you out with the mandrakes of my son. And that happens. And Leah has um, children, which the Torah seems to connect to this business of the mandrakes. She has actually three children. 
she has, first of all, uh, Yisachar, and then she has Zvulun, and then and afterwards, she bore him a daughter. Her name is Dina. The fact that the Torah mentions a daughter is interesting. The girls are often not mentioned at all, but they are mentioned when there's a story about them. So the Torah really sets up a potential story about Dina, but the point is that Dina is born as she's born out of, out of this scenario where Rachel and Leah trade the rights to Yaakov with the mandrakes, and then Leah went out to inform Yaakov, come to me tonight, I've rented you out for the night. So now we have, in our story begins, Dina goes out, it reminds us of the verse, Leah went out, and then I show you Yaakov, which is superfluous, clearly, is a way to refresh our memory about the story. It's coming out of, this story comes out of the trading off of Yaakov between Rachel and Leah. And that trading out of Yaakov, apart from the fact that it's negative in and of itself, obviously, I rented you out for the night. That is, from the Torah's perspective, I think, the way Lovan might speak, or Lovan would think, he wouldn't even say it, he would think it. But the point is that that's, that recalls for us the rivalry, the struggles between Rachel and Leah about children and about their place within the family. Because Leah is initially, in the words of the Torah, snua, let's say unbeloved, literally hated one, unfavored one. And there's this whole struggle and the children, having children is part of that struggle. So the, the, the Torah reminds us here of something we may have forgotten, which is the family has been created along the lines of Rachel and Leah, along the lines of the competition, the struggle, etc. And that's the first verse. Now we have a story about this very Dina, whom, uh, whom, uh, who is, you know, who is uh, at the part of that entire story. And not only that, she goes out the same way Leah went out. This is the introduction to chapter 34 to the story of Dina. Now the name Dina itself is interesting. Maybe we'll get to that later on. As she goes out, we're told to see the daughters of the land. And the question is, is the very going out problematic or not? Not from our perspective, but from the biblical perspective, is the going out, uh, is the going out a question? Um, the, um, We'll get back to that later on, perhaps. There is a Rashi cites, Rashi sees it negatively. And we'll get to this later, hopefully today, if not today, next week. So we're told that she went out to see the daughters of the land, see them, but she's seen by Shem, the son of Hamar. He was mentioned, Shem and Hamar mentioned earlier, um, at the end of chapter 33, Jacob purchases his parcel of land from the sons of Hamar, the head of Avishchem. Avishchem is the father of Shechem, but Shechem is also a city. Shechem is the person, and Shechem is the city. That's a very important point for the story. He's both city and person. Uh, so 
again, we don't, again, how old she is, we don't know. She's young. We don't know. She's called the Yalda in the story, a young, a young girl. We don't know. She's young. In response to Gail's question. Um, here we have, of course, something we've seen before, the seeing and the taking. Vayarota, Vayikachota, and he non-consensually sleeps with her. Vayanela and Inui is abuse. It's one of the covenantal terms. Gerut Avdut and Inui. So he acts as, we've seen earlier, seeing and taking, which of course is the primal sin in Breshit. It appears, story of the Garden of Eden, it appears with the Bnei Elohim in chapter six. It appears with Mitzrayim in chapter 12. And here it appears again, seeing and taking. It's a little different there in the first three instances, there's also the word tov, but here not. But in terms of seeing and taking, it's precisely what Mitzrayim does. And we remember, of course, that in the Torah, elsewhere, the Torah has compared the behavior of Mitzrayim to the behavior of Canaan. In, in Vayikra chapter 18, the chapter that deals with forbidden relations, so Mitzrayim and Canaan are similar. Seeing and taking is the primal sin. And that's what Shechem, the son of Hamor, does. He sees her, sleeps with her, not Ota, not, not Ima, but Ota, and Vayanela, Inui. I wouldn't say disgraced, but it's negative for sure. So we have a sin, the sin of Canaan. Isn't it all that surprising? But what is surprising is the continuation of the story. And that is, Vatidbak Nafsho Bedila Bat Yaakov. Batidbak Nafsho, with Davak is to cleave, his soul cleaved unto Dina, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young, the young girl, maiden. And he spoke to her tenderly. And that's very surprising. In other words, what you have over here is three terms, which I would say are negative, are positive. Batidbak, that's the, the Torah first speaks about man and woman, about marriage. Therefore, a man live, leaves his parents' home, his father and mother, and cleaves unto his wife, and they become one flesh. That's Vidavak. And then Vayahav, he loved her. And to speak to her, which they translate tenderly, I think is a good translation. You have it later on in Breshit at the very end, when the brothers go to Yosef, they think Yosef's going to kill them, take us as slaves, and Joseph consoles them, and he speaks Alibam. So is without question positive. There's no question. As is Vayahav, and as is Vatidbak. He actually falls in love with her. And now the question is, on the other hand, he raped her. So this, this is the question. Uh, this is a complicating factor in verse number three. Shem says to his father, Chamor, take for me this girl, Yalda typically is younger than Nara, so she's young. Get me this girl as a wife. He wants to formalize this as a marriage. He wants to make it a permanent relationship. So he speaks to his father to arrange a marriage. Okay. And now we have the so before we even proceed over here, already it's a complicated story. 
verse number one about seeing and taking, raping her is without question extraordinarily negative. Uh, it's something that we, Avram was afraid they do in Mitzrayim. Uh, they took Sarah, they did it in Mitzrayim in, in effect. And now we have in Canaan, but the next two verses are surprising. It seems that he actually loves her, he wants to marry her, and he asks her father to arrange her. Okay, so now let's continue. So this, that was verse number four, now we get to five and six. Yaakov Shema, now we have from Yaakov's standpoint. Yaakov Shema ki timeit binabito. Jacob heard he had defiled Dina, his daughter. Timei is an interesting word, always negative. From Jacob's standpoint, he doesn't know what they're thinking. He knows one thing, what he did. His sons were in the field with the cattle. They're watching the cattle, the shepherds. And Jacob was silent until they returned. He said nothing until they came home. And here we come to a question that hangs over the entire story, which is Jacob's silence, for one thing. What is Jacob thinking? And in general, what does the Torah make of the characters in the story, of which there are essentially are four? There is, well, there's Dina, there's Dina for one. There's Shrem and Hamar, call that two. There is Jacob. That's three. And there are Jacob's sons. That's four. And of course, within Jacob's sons, there's Shimon and Levi and all the other sons of Jacob. These are the characters in this in the story. And the question is, and there's a narrator telling us the story. And the question is, what is the position of the narrator in the story? What is the approach? What is the position of the narrator? What does the narrator think of this? Here we have, there was a great dispute between Sternberg on one hand, who wrote an article about the Nemea Sternberg, the same way he wrote about poetics of biblical narrative, as a long article about Dina. And it was critiqued by two people, I think Fuel and Gun is the name. And then Sternberg wrote a response to them. And just to put it out there in the beginning, Sternberg's point, which he wrote and that he defended very strenuously, is that the Torah, called the biblical narrator, takes the side of Shimon and Levi. Shimon and Levi, as I'm sure we all know, will avenge their sister's dishonor by massacring the entire town of Shechem. The claim of Sternberg is that the Torah, as it were, sides with them and against Shechem and Hamor and the others. That was his position. And it was disputed by uh, this gun and fuel. I think they were together disputing it and he, and he attacked them uh, again. So we will have to deal with this question about what is the Torah's view of the story of story of Shrem? Is it true, as Sternberg says, that the Torah essentially sides with Shrem, with, uh, with, with the brothers, with Shimon and Levi? We'll get to that later. Um, I just would say as an aside, before we get, we'll get to that point, that whose side the biblical narrator is on, is it A or is it B? That in my view, the correct answer and the only correct answer is that it's not on anybody's side. It's not on the side of Shem and it's not on the side of Shimon and Levi. It's on nobody's side. The Torah has a very uh, 
even-handed critique of everybody in the story. Nobody comes off clean in the story. It's all shades of gray, but we'll get to that later on. Uh, in any event, sounds like Shechem, the person Shechem wants to do this right at this point. So Chamor, the father of Shechem, goes out to speak to him. Him is the singular, which makes complete sense because he's the father of the prospective groom and he goes out to speak to the father of the prospective bride. But the Torah said two verses earlier that Yaakov had waited for his sons to come home. We don't know why he waits for them. But what's interesting is that his sons, not Yaakov, play the central role in the story. Yaakov is surprisingly quite passive in the story of Shechem, the story of Dina, as we shall soon see. Let me take one more verse and I'll stop the comments or questions. Now we're told, Jacob's sons came, in the, came from the field Kishamam, having heard the news or when they heard. And they were distressed. In Hebrew, sad. And they were angry. So there's a combination of sadness and anger. For an outrage had been committed to, to sleep with, forcibly, Jacob's daughter. A thing not to be done. Such a thing should not be done. Let's, this is, let me take a few minutes on this particular verse. Uh, the first point is, the way we read it, that is to say, the, the truck, the, the cantillation notes, which are essentially punctuation, read it as the translation here has it, that Jacob's sons came from the field when they heard. Now, if that be the case, that means they didn't hear from Jacob, because we're told that Jacob, that Jacob was silent until they came home. He was silent. So they must have heard it from somebody else. Maybe it's public knowledge. Somehow they heard it. That's one possibility. Um, the other way to read the verse is to punctuate it differently, to divide it differently. Jacob's sons came back from the field. Then, and when they heard, they became angry. And the difference between these two readings the Talmud says that these are one, one, a verse in the Torah that you can read either way. There are five verses in the Torah. You can't determine which way to break them up. This for the Talmud is one of those verses. So the difference is, do they hear it from Jacob? Or do they hear it before Jacob? They hear it from somebody else? Or, or not? That's simply simple factual question in the verse. Um, if they heard it from others, it means it's public knowledge. If they heard it when only when they got back, Jacob waits, does nothing until they return. And he, as soon as they come back, Jacob tells them. So those are two possibilities. He tells them. Now remember that it says, Hamar, the father of Shem, went out to speak to Jacob. Doesn't mean he's met Jacob yet. He leaves his home. He's going to speak to Yaakov. And now Yaakov is waiting. And before he speaks to Hamar, 
he's informed his sons, and we're told about the response of the sons. Two, two words, vayitatsvu and vayichar, two descriptions of them, angry and distressed. And that combination of anger and distress we have encountered earlier in the Torah, and we encounter it in a passage that is significant for us. What I'm referring to is, it's not precisely the same, but we all remember the story of Cain and Hevel. Cain and Hevel. Cain and Hevel, uh, we have, um, Cain brings a sacrifice to God. Hevel also brings a sacrifice to God in chapter four. And the Torah says that God favored the, the offering of Hevel and did not favor the offering of, of Cain. And Cain was very angry. And God said to Cain back in chapter four, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? And that combination is a dangerous one, right? Here it is, verse number five. Verse number four. Right? He was just here, they translate the same way. He was distressed and his face fell. He was angry, vayichar, anger, anger and sadness, the combination, which is mentioned in verse number five and repeated in verse number six. What are you angry about? You can make things better, right? If you do well, you'll be okay. If not, not. And of course, we know what this leads to the anger and the distress leads to murder. So now we have back in our verse, the brothers. Right? Jacob's sons, when they hear about it, they are angry and they are distressed, sad. I'm not sure should be translated as sad, sad in Arab vocabulary. Etzev. The word etzev, of course, is a central word up to this point in Genesis. Uh, the, the, that was the punishment for Cain and for, for Adam and Eve, right? For the woman, for the, for, for the man, it's you will work very hard and eat means with, with struggle, with hard labor, sadness. God says it'll be etsev with pain. It doesn't mean sadness, it means pain. And then God is later. When God determines to destroy the world, and of course, all of course, obviously, are plays on a little two-letter word, which is eights, which is the primal sin. So it's all coming out of that primal sin. But the combination of itzavon and haron af, is a very dangerous one. And now the Torah, it's interesting. And now the Torah, the Torah, the narrator says, tells us why they're so angry. For what had happened was a nivala, was a disgusting thing, a wrong act had taken place, right? Rape of Jacob's daughter is a nivala. And then, a thing not to be done. And the question is, which is a, a value judgment, such a thing should never happen. Is that the statement that is imputed to, to the uh, Bnei Yaakov? Or is that a statement made independently 
by the by the narrator. It's certainly a statement made by the narrator. Is the narrator saying, and you know what, this, this should never happen. Or is the narrator saying they came back from the field and this is why they're angry because they're saying to themselves, a nevala has taken place, such a thing should not happen. Either of those two possibilities, but what is certainly the case is that the narrator is saying it. And I point this out for the following reason, that the expression, we actually have encountered earlier in the Torah in two different places, in two different places. One is back in chapter 20. That's the story of when King Abimelech, the Philistine takes, takes Sarah. And he discovers that God, and he discovers that um, God says to him, she's a married woman, you shouldn't, you shouldn't take her. And then Abimelech goes back to Abraham. First he says to God, what do you want from me? I didn't know, it's not my fault, etc." And then Abimelech speaks to Abraham um, and says to him, in verse number nine, what did you do to us? What have I done wrong to you? You brought upon me and my kingdom a great sin. Actions which should never take place. You did to me. Of course, it's funny in a way, Abraham didn't actually do anything. The only one who did something was Avimelech, who took her. But here we have in the mouth of Avimelech, that's one place that we have it. And then, um, where else do we have it? Where else do we have it? Later with Amnon and Tamar. Excuse me? Later with Amnon and Tamar, when Tamar tries to in the Torah, I'm saying. What do you have in the Torah? Oh, in the Torah. With, uh, Levan, when Levan tricks... With Lavan, uh, isn't it? Yeah. He's, find uh, that you, verse with Lavan. You don't marry the younger one first. It's not... Oh, yes, that's it, right. That's right. That's what I had in mind. So you have this statement, twice before. And here, I, I, why do I mention this? To point out the difference between them. That in the first two instances, okay? In the first two instances, uh, the, in the first two instances, the person making the claim himself is a big phony. Now, it doesn't mean that the claim is completely to be disregarded. In the notice, in the first instance, um, Yes, it's true that Abimelech is the villain. On the other hand, Abraham did say that Sarah is his sister. That doesn't legitimize taking her, but it certainly leaves open the possibility that she could be taken. So Abraham's behavior in that chapter is very problematic, leaving Abimelech out of the equation. We know what he is, he's a phony, but it doesn't mean that his critique is completely wrong. It's 80% wrong, but there is a critique. In the case of Yaakov and Lavan, yes. The Yaakov made it very clear. I've worked seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. But um, okay, that's true. That is true. On the other hand, the way the thing is set up, I'll work for you. He turns the marriage into a business proposition. It's also problematic. But over here, but in those two cases, the statement is made by a person and a dubious person. But in this case over here, 
in our chapter, it's the narrator talking. The chen lo is a statement made by the narrator. That means it's really true. This is, there is no justification for this. In fact, it's in the Vallah, and in fact, it's 100% true. In other words, when people speak, I don't care who they are, in the biblical text, when people make statements, when people make statements, we always have to question. It doesn't matter who it is, but people make statements. For example, I'll give, go back to that case of Abraham. Abraham is, Avimel says, why did you lie? Why did you say that she's your sister? He has three answers. She really is my sister. I was afraid I'd be killed. We do this every place we go. Those are the answers he gives. Each one is problematic. But when it comes to Isaac in chapter 26, in the parallel story, there the Torah says, and Isaac was afraid for his life, and therefore he lied. For Isaac said, Isaac thought, lest they kill me. There the Torah testifies for the biblical narrator, the implied author. And we always give more weight to what the narrator says, to what the Torah says, than any character. That's a perfect example of it. When Abraham speaks, he always, always answers a problematic. So we, we, we question it on some level because there's three different answers. Why need three? And none of them are very good. But when you get to Isaac, he gives the only one possible truth, which is I was forced to be here. I didn't choose to be here. God said, stay, it's dangerous. So I lied and the Torah says, and that's true. He was afraid, that's why he did it. In any event, let me stop here for a moment and take comments or questions. There were several. Feel free to unmute yourself or if you would like uh, for me to read something that you've written in the chat, just let me know, I'm happy to. Yeah, again, why, why are you so sure that, uh, that in, in this case, it is the narrator, since it seems ambiguous in the Pasuk, and it could be, it could be that, 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 that that's, the, uh, that's the position of the brothers. They're, they're talking about this is not conventional. Right. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that it's not also the brothers. I, that's why I said, I think that the statement is being imputed. Kiki Nevalah, Sabi Yisrael, is not their direct speech, though, right? They didn't say to each other, Nevalah, Sabi Yisrael. Didn't say that. It says, oh, that's, okay. is ah. saying about them. That's my ah. point. Ah. With Isaac. With Isaac. I see. What he said, for Isaac said, lest they kill me on account of my wife. It is what he's thinking, or he thought so. But the Torah says it's true. So we know that is the one and only reason. And in his case, it's a very good reason, too. Right. He so, didn't so, choose to be there. No, so I see. didn't choose to be in the land of the Philistines. God said, Gulba Aretz Hazo. Not like Abraham. Abraham chooses to go there. If it's so dangerous, why, why are you going? So Isaac is a, comes off very differently. He has one, one reason, and the Torah has testified that is, in fact, the truth. That is his reason, and it's a good reason, too. That's my point. Anybody else? If there were some other comments in the chat. With well, yeah, I, want, I, I mean, I, I commented immediately, I, but it's a sidebar because it's, it's, long, it's long afterwards, and, but it's just... It's just actually I'd appreciate if you could actually just spend one moment um, uh, talking about the idea of calling a mizbeach God, which seems to recapitulate. I mean, it seems it seems on the same page with with the pagans calling idols God. All right. I'm I mean, I mean, or or call it or or call it or or call or calling or calling the golden calf, which is going to replace Moses. 
God okay, because I, it's because I, I, it's I, I because it's question. your leader. The question is essentially the midrash asked that very question. It's not the only place we have it. The, the midrash connects it to another situation where the altar seems to be called God, and that is very relevant to us. Amalek. We read it on Purim. Make Russia Mo Hashem Nisi. It's a Torah reading for Purim. Yes. Moses built an altar, and he said, The altar, God is my banner, Hashem Nisi. Um, in those two instances, the Midrash makes the claim that he didn't actually call the altar this. He didn't, this wasn't the name of the altar. He was describing his situation, but it wasn't actually calling the altar God. So the Midrash was troubled by your point of naming, calling an object God. But in any event, it does seem like from the text, though, that is the name that he gives to it. Okay, it could be that he called out by Yikro Lo, he called out. The Midrash has several different possibilities how to, how to, uh, actually, how to deal with this verse, but I, I'm not going to get there now. Actually, the question actually, is a valid question. Actually, I just got something etymological, which is, which is that the word ale is exactly the word L. And that could be the and and that could be the meaning, that it's where God appears to you, it's where you focus Maybe, toward. I don't know. It's, it's uh, where you it's where you focus toward God. Okay, the, the, the midrash is something along those lines. The midrash is bothered by your question, that is he actually calling this altar, El uh, Yisrael? Who else has a question? There were other stuff in the chat. I I, I do. Yes. Um, how much is the sense of outrage related to the fact that um, Hamor is a non-Israelite? Well, there are basically everybody's a non-Israelite. <laughs> the only Israelites are, are Israel, Jacob, and his family. So everybody's a non-Israelite. He's a Canaanite. Let's start with that. Not just a non-Israelite. Chibi is a Canaanite. Um, so that... I mean, that factors into the story. That's central to the story. Let me make it very clear. The story actually is the story of Dina. I mean, this will take us, the story of Dina is not actually about Dina. That's not what the, that's not what the story is about. The story is hardly about Dina. It is, she's part of the story. She's a, she's, a, she's a prop in the story, one might say, but she doesn't play outside of being molested she doesn't say one word in the story. One of the questions that was debated is what is, what is she thinking? What is Dina thinking over here? Maybe she's, maybe she's in love with, 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 with this guy, Shem, he loves her, or maybe she just wants to escape. We will we'll never know that because there's absolutely no evidence one way or the other. We can make all kinds of presumptions, but in this particular story, unlike its parallel story that maybe we'll get to next week, which is the story of Amnon and Tamar, which I can say in, 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 in my new book is actually based on the story. And the story of Amnon and Tamar, and there are several biblical stories. We could spend the whole semester on just the story because there are several different stories that play off the story of Dina. And they're not stories that have no significance. They're incredibly important stories. So in the Amnon and Tamar story, let me just make one comment about it. In that story, um, Tamar, the victim, is actually, um, she is, uh, she, uh, she actually tries to talk him out of it. And then she actually fights him. Sounds like she actually physically has a fight with him and he prevails, he's stronger than she is. 
but she's actually a character in the story. But in the story over here, Dina is necessary for the story, but she's not a character in the same way. I mean, stories need characters, but there are different kinds of characters. Tamara is a real person in the story, and that has all kinds of implications. And when you look at the story of Dina, the fact that Dina is, a, is molested, is attacked, but says nothing, we have no idea what she's thinking, actually. So the story over there, the story of Amnon and Tamar, presents Amnon in a much worse light than, 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 than Shechem. Because not only, I mean, he does all kinds of terrible things. He, it's a person with no redeeming qualities whatsoever. Whereas the story of Shechem, what's surprising is that the Torah has painted Shechem not, it's not black and white. What he did was terrible, that, no question. But it then proceeds to present him as somebody who wants to try to make it right as best he can. We'll get to that. So this, this, the stories that play off the story of, of, of Dina and Shechem, which is not really about Dina, it's about something completely different. The story of Amnon and Tamar, it's not about Amnon and Tamar. It's about something else. And that's, you know, that's what's missing. We call it the story of Dina, but it's not about Dina. There's something else going on, and the things going on in the story that is central to the book of Genesis. Just as the story of Amnon and Tamar is not really about Tamar. It's about something else. It's about kingship. It's about succession. Yeah, Kathleen, what do you want to say? I wanted to ask, you said that it, it seemed as if maybe it was the narrator that was making the judgment that uh, sexual abuse is wrong. It's not clear that it comes from the characters, but it might come from the narrator. And most sexual abuse in the Torah, there is some negative connotation brought by the characters or the narrator. I'm just wondering how that fits in with ancient and sacred literature. Is the Torah unique in being uh, negative about sexual abuse or is it, is it uh, not unique? Because it seems like the Torah wants to make the point that this is not okay, but why is it doing it? Is it to distinguish well, us? Let's put it this way. I think that no, I'm not suggesting that the characters don't think it's negative. The characters are going to massacre the whole city. Maybe they're going to, they're going to take it to an extreme. They're going to kill not just Shem the person, but Shem the town, whom they consider co-conspirators or, or guilty after the fact, actually. Accomplices after the fact. That was Sternberg's point. They are accomplices in a certain sense after the fact, but... I mean, let's, I put. It, I don't think Sternberg is correct in his reading of the chapter. I think it's very not correct. It's wrong. We'll get to that. But it's a it's a great story. To what degree the Torah is unique is very. I'm no expert in, in the ancient Near East. I will say the following: that when you read certain stories of what happens in the world today, I'm not talking about biblical times. Mm -hmm. For example, blaming the victim. The Torah goes out of its way in the Book of Devarim to say that if a woman is, a married woman is raped, goes out of its way to say, and don't touch the woman. It's not her fault, she's only a victim. Mm -hmm. And that seems obvious to everybody, to all, all of us, but there are places in the world, even today, where if a, if a woman is, is molested by somebody, and mm -hmm. she's, she's also found, she's guilty in some sense, and often she's killed by some mm -hmm. avenging relative, could be her brother or her parents or something like that, which to us sounds, completely crazy, but it's clear that the Torah, I would say that those verses in the Torah, 3000 years ago, whatever, are actually saying, don't blame the victim. So that's for sure. But again, to give an overall view of, it's hard to believe that most societies 
did not see the attack upon a, 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 a woman as offensive, if only for the fact that it's an attack upon the family, not even the, this particular person, but her family. But I think in the Torah's case, certainly in the book of Devarim, it makes it about clear as can be that it's, it's an offense which is tantamount to murder, actually. The Torah compares it to murder. The same way if someone kills somebody else, so is this matter, which is about as strong a statement as one could make. So again, I don't know if, relative to other cultures how it plays out, but the Torah is pretty clear about it. I don't mean to say it's only the narrator, though. I think it is, um, I think it is uh, e even the narrator, and that objectifies it. It's not just Shimon and Levi. It's not just the brothers. It's not whatever Yaakov's thinking. It's an, it's an objective truth. Such a thing should not be done. And this verse, which is one of the important verses of the chapter, was co-opted by the author of Samuel. We get there, we'll see that, we'll see that the story of Amlin and Tamar is to be read together with Dina. The one who wrote that story up had the Chumash open. There's no question. And it plays off the story. All the characters are parallel and different. So very, we'll get to that later on. Yes, honor killings is what they call, yes. All right, anybody Wait, else? Can I ask a question? Yeah, of course. Hey, thank you, Rabbi Silver. I learned so much. Uh, so thank you and to all of you for your questions and comments. Uh, this is sort of a side thing. Uh, why did um, Rachel wait so, she was very troubled not having children. Why did she, and did she, I can't tell from the reading, did she wait so, so long um, to offer her handmaid then? It, was there a customary waiting time to see if no, you could get the, pregnant the or... I don't know about customary. The, the Torah, Sarah also offered her handmaiden to Abraham. In right. the Torah, the way it works is, she it says she, she became jealous of her sister. In other words, the sister has four children. And after the fourth child, the sister is now her, her, her equal. I mean, Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, not Leah. Okay, right. but now Leah is the mother of four children. And then it says she became jealous in the beginning of chapter 30. She offers her handmaiden. That's the first thing she does. Then she negotiates for the mandrakes, right. which are a fertility pill. That's the next thing she does. Uh, she said to Jacob, give me children. She did before the, right. she says, give me children, thinking Jacob has some power to produce the children. That's another thing that she does. I have argued strenuously that the taking of the trophim, that they're also a kind of fertility god. Mm -hmm. That's another thing that she does. Everything she does is with the intention of having children. She wants mm -hmm. children. When she begins, when she begins, when her says she became jealous of her sister and she realizes the other one has kids, I don't. And my place in the family maybe is threatened, but she also wants to have children. And she dies having children. She dies yes. in childbirth. Uh, and Rachel is presented in the later writings of the Bible as the, as the one matriarch patriarch who was most devoted to our children. And that's what Jeremiah says, right? We read it on Rosh Hashanah. Rachel Mavaka Abonela. Rachel is oh, so born and waiting for her children to come home. And it sounds like all, all of Israel is her children. And she is, in fact, the most beloved of all the matriarchs and patriarchs without question. We all love Rachel. Yes. She's the most beloved, right? And the fact is, in fact, the davening on Rosh Hashanah, the, the liturgy always has highlights, you know? I would say the highlight of Rosh Hashanah for me, I believe in terms of the way it's set up is the central blessing of Rosh Hashanah, which Zichron notes, 
and the great dramatic moment on Rosh Hashanah is There's no I mean, question. We say, if, right? No matter what our merits or, or may, may or may not be, we, we are your children. Remember us when we were little innocent children. That's coming out of the story of Rachel. Because that's God's response to Rachel, who's crying, who refuses to give up. Rachel never yes. gives up. So he she makes her us. so human. Therefore, we love Rachel. So yes. that's, it's not, she's not the most ethical. In fact, most would make the claim that in the Torah, she's hardly ethical at all. And in fact, I would make a further claim. Not only is she not ethical in the Torah, even, even in, the, in the rabbinic midrash, she's not ethical either. She's mm-hmm. known, she gave the signs to her sister. That's completely wrong. It's an unethical behavior. It's the wrong thing yes. to do from an ethical standpoint, but from an standpoint of devotion and love for the other, it's not the wrong thing to do. She oh. loves her sister. She's far, sorry for her sister. Okay, she sacrifices Jacob. And the same thing with her children. She's the one who stands by the border and waits for the children to come home, refuses to be consoled. She's a Jacob figure in that sense. Anyway, so Thanks. yeah, so it starts though with the jealousy, that's for sure. Yeah. But it takes it takes many forms. Her entire life is all about, as she said, after Joseph was born, Yosef Hashem Ribenacher, one another child. So she's devoted to the idea of having children, devoted to her children in later literature. And that's the story of, of Rachel. Okay, let's get back to the Dina story now. The story of Dina, as I said, we could spend many, many weeks on the story of Dina. But let's let's, let's meanwhile we have the Torah, the, the narrative, such a thing should never take place. Now we have the beginning of verse number, what's verse number eight? It's, it's the little things you got to pick up. Verse number eight. Hamar spoke, Hamar is the father of Shem, spoke itam. Itam means them. Earlier it said that Hamar went out with Daber ito, with him, singular which makes complete sense because he's the father of, of, of Shem and Jacob's the father of Dina. So father to father, father of the groom, father of the bride, prospective groom and bride, that makes total sense. But Jacob is silent and Jacob has included them in the conversation. Right? He doesn't do anything until they come back. Hamar spoke to them. It's very striking. Shem, my son, longs for, loves, desires, bitchem, your daughter. It doesn't say bitech, your daughter, singular, your daughter, plural. But of course, the brothers are not the parents of, of Dina. The brothers are the brothers of Dina. But it's called bitchem. So bitchem is addressed to Jacob. It is his daughter. But somehow it's, it's the plural of bitrem. Now we do know earlier in the Torah that the brother often was central in the marriage arrangement. That's when Lavan was central when, when, when the servant of Abraham went to find a wife, he speaks to Lavan, not just the parents. And perhaps Jacob, when Abraham said, say you're my sister, according to one interpretation, say you're my sister, so I'll negotiate the marriage. And before the marriage is consummated, we'll, we'll take the last train out of town. That's what the Ron thinks. So it's not that surprising, but here it's clear that Yaakov, for whatever reason, it's hard to know why, wants to include them. And, and now we have the offer of Hamar. Let's look at the offer of Hamar. It loves your daughter. So give her to him in marriage. He wants to make it a formal marriage. And then he says, 
And there's an incentive to do this. And you will intermarry with us, not just this marriage, but in general. You will give us your daughters. And you will take the daughters for, your, for yourself. Notice that he puts it in their court. You'll give us what you want and you'll take what you want. You dwell with us. And the land will be open before you. Settle, move about, acquire holdings in it. In other words, it'll be your land. There's, a, I would say, a financial incentive. As often with marriage, it's not just about love. It's often relationship between families. In this particular case, he's making a very generous offer. Or the offer that he seems to be making is, this is a good opportunity for you. First of all, you can take what you want. Right? You give us what you want and you'll take what you want. Which is interesting in terms of the very first verse of the story. He took her. Shem took her. And now the offer is being made, perhaps in a similar fashion. You will take for yourselves our daughters. So there's a financial incentive as well in verse number 10. Be acquired, where to hold on to something. Holdings is a good translation. Acquire holdings in it. And let's continue. That's the offer. Go ahead. Now Shrem speaks up. First the father speaks up, and then Shrem speaks up. Now Shrem speaks to the father and the brother. Let me find favor in your eyes. You can. You, could, you should determine what I will give you. That is to say, you can, you can ask of me a very big moar umatan. Moar umatan is a very two important words. Here they translate bribe price, could be bribe price, dowry, moar umatan. And I will give, uh, and give me this young woman as a wife. Tznuli, you give it to me. Tznu. Not me taking. You give. And you can tell me to pay what I will pay. Now here, before we get to the response of Jacob's sons, Jake, Jacob has no response. Before we get to Jacob's sons who respond, I would simply point out that in the Chumash, later on in the Torah, in the book of Tzvarim, the Torah speaks about what happens if a man rapes an, 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 an unmarried woman. If a man rapes an unmarried woman. So what is the rule about that? Let's see if we can find that verse quickly over here. Um, where is that verse? It keeps it for 30 days. It's in Devarim. Where is it? Hold on. Kitetse. It's in Kitetse. The question is where, right? I'm looking at Kitetsay, let's see. Um, hold on one second, where is it? Um, here is the very end of chapter 22 of Devarim. Ki imsa ish nara betula shelo orasa utfasa v'shachabi marvin imsa. If a man seizes, comes upon a virgin who is not engaged, seizes her, lies with her, they are discovered. She's not married. If she's married, then you kill him. But if she's not married, 
ונתן האיש אשר חייב עמו להביא הנערה חמישים כסף ולא תהיה לי אישה תחת אשר עינו לא יאכל שלך כל ימיו I know this does not accord with our sensibilities, but here's what it says. In that instance, you pay the father of the bride 50, 50 coins of silver, 50 shekels of silver. She shall be his wife, and he's not permitted, he's not permitted to divorce her. Divorce is permissible in the Torah, but not in this case. He has to, she remains married to him because he abused her, tachat he may never send her away all of his days. The point being, presumably, that the idea of the Torah is protection of the woman, because a woman who's been violated might be seen as, uh, you know, might have a difficult time getting married. So in this case, there's a fine, 50 shekels of silver, and he must care for her. He can never send her away. He can never send her away. In fact, if we remember the story of Amun and Tamar, after he rapes his half-sister Tamar, he throws her out of the house. He says, throw this one out of the house. And she pleads with him, don't do that to me. This is worse than the other thing. Don't send me out. Don't, don't, don't discard me, which he does. Now over here, I, I simply point this out for the following reason. In the case of Shechem, what Shechem is saying is, of course, I want to marry her. There's no question about that. But beyond that, I'll pay whatever you want. You can determine what, what I shall pay. In other words, he's going, seems to be going beyond what the Torah says later, prescriptively as law, that you pay a fine of 50 shekels of silver. Here it says something different. He says, look, I want to marry her. I want to marry her. And you give her to me. And whatever you determine, the bride price, the dowry, whatever it is, I'll do. And the reason given later in the Torah, tachat asher because she was, she was abused, ina, is the first verse of our chapter. So it sounds like at least the verses in Dvarim are directly connected over here. When you read the verse here, the verses here in our chapter, in light of what it says later, he's making, from a certain perspective, a generous offer. Now, I'm not suggesting that that completely eliminates what he did. So in the eyes of her brothers, it certainly doesn't. And even when Jacob first hears about it, it uses the word timei. He has defiled her, made her impure. But my point is that what we have in front of us is a story which is exceedingly great. And all the characters, there's no black and white over here. He did the wrong thing. He wants to try to make it right. Uh, and the question is, again, uh, each of these characters, and I think that is actually the point of the story. It's not the only point, some of the very important points. Uh, and we'll get to that hopefully next week, but I'm not sure we can finish it even next week, but we'll do the best we can. But my point is that all of these characters are very complicated. It's certainly true of Shem, uh, it's true of, Maybe Hamar is, Hamar is a salesman. He's trying to sell them on it. But Shechem is sincere over here. I don't think we have any reason to doubt it because, as I said, the narrator, the Torah has told us he loves her. The Torah says he speaks tenderly to her. He wants to make it right. And I think we perhaps have some, have some sympathy here. But now we have, a, we have the response. 
and I'm just read a couple of verses and I'll take uh, comments or questions in a moment. We have the response, and the response begins in verse 13. It says that uh, the um, sons of Jacob, they responded. And they responded with guile, and they spoke because he had defiled their sister, defiled Dina. And the first thing we notice over here, we notice two things immediately. First thing is that Jacob doesn't speak. I mean, even if they want to speak up, you know, you don't speak up. He went out to speak to the father and the children should not speak, right? That's the scene in the, uh, in the, uh, in the uh, Godfather, is it? When the guy comes to make a drug deal and, and who's it, what's the name of the son? I forget his name. Son, Sonny speaks up. And the godfather says, you have to excuse my children. It's, it's my fault. I haven't trained them properly. You don't speak up. When your father is there, you don't speak up first. So Jay, that's very striking. And here there's something else. Now, the question is, are they speak, is this inappropriate because they speak up before their father? Or is Jacob silent? Jacob says nothing because he wants them to speak up and he's taking himself out of the picture. That's a one way to read the story. He waits for them to come. He says nothing. He's silent because he wants them to handle it. And the question is, why does he want them to handle it? So we'll, we'll, we'll think about that together. But there's something else over here about verse number 13, a very simple point. And that is in the story, when someone speaks up, the Torah introduces it with the word vayomru, they said, or vayidabru. But over here, they respond, they could have said vayomru b'nei Yaakov Shem. It says vayaanu, and here we have a play which the English doesn't pick up, but the Hebrew does. Vayaanu is a response to vayaaneha. Vayaaneha, he abused her, inui. Right, well, I know it means to respond, but inui means to abuse. And Vayanu B'nei Yaakov Shem, that the, the Torah says, that from their perspective, actually, from their perspective, I'm not saying it's the Torah's perspective, but from their perspective, what they're going to do is completely appropriate. It's a quid pro quo, because he, they were Ma'aneh, their sister, and now they're gonna, we are going to be Ma'aneh Shem, and maybe more than just Shem. And they speak Bamirma. With, with guile or with stealth. Mirma is a word we encountered earlier. It's what Isaac said to Esau. Your brother came to Mirma and he stole your blessing. Mirma is a negative. So it's clear that on one hand, Torah is saying their behavior is negative. It's speaking with, with, with dishonesty. They speak dishonestly and Mirma can never be good. On the other hand, from their perspective at least, and now we wonder above all about Jacob. Why is Yaakov silent? It's one of those questions that it's very hard to know the answer to. Is he silent because he's come back to the land and he, uh, he's now Israel? And he says to himself, I have, I have crossed over to the other side and now I've, I've accomplished the goal of the third generation and I've returned. And now the next generation is the, is the house. And they have to start taking responsibility. 
So he sees this as an opportunity to give them the op give them the opportunity to make the decision to be responsible. And perhaps he doesn't know exactly what they're going to do. He's going to hand this difficult situation over to them. Is that why? Or does he feel that they have a right to do it? Because after all, um, Dina Batalea, I don't know, maybe because the ones, the leading children in the family, the oldest children are all Leia's, Leia's, Leia's sons, the, for the four oldest. So maybe they want to take the lead on this, given the fact that it's their sister. I will, we'll get to these questions later. But the fact of the matter is, the fact is, he doesn't speak up. And there's another darker possibility, which is he sort of suspects what they might do, but doesn't want to do it himself. Hecherish is to be silent. But the word hecherish in biblical Hebrew often means to conspire. Carries often within a negative side. And this is one of those cases of ambiguity where I don't think we'll ever really know. What we do know is de facto, he does nothing. Rabbi, the story of Amnon and Tamar, there we have the same question about King David, who does nothing. We'll get to that. One story is based on the other, and one story informs the other. Let me stop at this point and take comments or questions. Rabbi? What, what uh, we have, uh, we have, we have six minutes left. Okay, let's take comments and questions then. Um, he's, uh, Jacob is called Jacob, not Israel. So he is still the crooked one rather than Israel, which is straight. And maybe that's one clue to it. And in, in this whole thing, he's never addressed as Israel. Right. The truth of the matter is that he, Jacob is never only Israel. And in fact, in fact, when God speaks to Yaakov, it's always Yaakov. His name is always Jacob. Um, some, when in, in describing him, sometimes he's called Israel. And that is a very good question. In what stories he's called Israel and in what stories he's called Jacob. The stories that typically deal with destiny, he's called Israel. Uh, it's a good point. I'm not sure that we have to see Jacob as only negative, though. I mean, there's, there are other ways to read Yaakov, not in a negative sense. Yes, it's true that when you say Jacob shall become Israel, that the transformation of Jacob to Israel from Akov to Mishar, clearly Israel is in a different light. Um, it's possible that the use of, of Yaakov over here and never, and never uses Israel in the story. That is true. And that's, a, that's an interesting point. But again, I, I would caution us about assuming that every time the word Yaakov appears, it is in negative, uh, it's, it's a negative. I don't think that's the case. Uh, his name is always Jacob. He's sort of every man. He's, you know, he's a person with Israel's another story. Israel's the one who overcomes Israel's destiny. Yeah, anybody else? Yes, yeah. Rabbi, it's, it's Sandra. Yeah. Um, so I have a question. You, you mentioned before, and we know this is true, that the story of Amnon and Tamar will uh, in many ways parallel uh, the story of uh, the rape of Dina. And if the silence of David, the father of, the, of, of Tamar in the Amnon story, leads to uh, a murder, murder of Amnon by Absalom, basically uh, uh, un unhealed anger by Absalom against his silent father who didn't do anything. Then we have to hark backwards to this Dina story right now, where we're asking the question, uh, you know, the silence of Jacob, is it ambiguous? Is it positive? Is it negative? I mean, to me, it's so negative and the unknown story um, reinforces that negativity. 
when David does a Jacob, pulls a Jacob. And, I, I, and, I agree. And we, will, we will discuss it at some length, actually. Yeah. But, but I, I, what I'm saying is I don't think that... Uh, I don't think that it's one of these gray, ambiguous things. I think the flumash and then the Navi picking it up is saying not, not the silence was deadly, just like you said before. That's in, true. In My question is why is he stories, I agree. In comparing the stories, anger and sadness was no, a no, deadly totally, combination. Yeah, so, we will, yeah, we will so get I, there I think probably it's next not week. Ambiguous. And I we think don't, by deadly. the way, we don't have to go to the story of Amnon to recognize that the brothers are angry at their father. They say it straight up at the end of the chapter. They say the last verse of the chapter, Vayomru, after Jacob reprimands them, is Vayomru achotenu. Shall we treat our sister as a prostitute? And not even clear who the he is, by the way. So we, obviously the brothers, and this is what the story is about at its core, it's about Jacob and his, and his, and his sons, is what the story is actually about, among other things. Having said all that, Right, but Rabbi, sometimes they say the, the sons are the, that the, that Shimon and Lady are Bnei Yaakov, and and then he, they are also referred to as as Ache um, Tina, and so uh, um, the ambiguity is: um, are they? Is there anger when it's uh, uh, directed towards their father, which it certainly is? Is that correct in the eye of the narrator that's, and the Torah? That's a, that's um, question, because right. they act as the brothers of Dina. So, what I'm, what, what I just wanted to make clear is that I think if, if in fact the, the unknown and Tamar story repeats this in many parallel ways, I think the answer to your question posed um, of, about the silence of Jacob here, I think. The Torah is indicating that it's absolutely negative, and in fact, that wasn't my question, Sandra. I'm going to ask you if it's uh -huh. negative. I'm uh -huh. asking you a different question. Why okay. is he silent? That's my question. Mm -hmm. Why is Jacob silent? That is mm -hmm. negative. Is is certainly negative, but the fact is, the question is why does he say nothing? And then the same question. Okay. We will get to this next week. The two stories are certainly tied together in a hundred ways, but. They are, in fact, um, different as well. The, okay. We'll, we'll, we'll see next week. It's very interesting. So, whole chapter in my book about this about this uh, story. Not a whole chapter, but a good piece of a chapter. Uh, anybody else? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I'd like to make a comment. Yes, sir. What? Yeah. Yeah. Trying for five. I, you know, as, as I, minutes. Excuse me. I, I think I'm talking. As as I've always read the story of Dina, that. The way it's described, it's not exactly like a rape. You know, you know, to this guy, for Hanaro, he didn't have to in a rape, it's a violation. Here, here's a guy who's really fallen in love with this girl, with Dino. And and, and it's not exactly it's not, it's not like Amnon the Tomar, which is a, a, a single event and he throws her out here. He's ready to go to, to any length to have this, this woman. You know, I contrast this with Leah and Yaakov. Yaakov thinks he's going to sleep with, with, with Rachel. And in a way, it's a reverse rape. She is sleeping with not the right man. She, is in, she has enticed him into a marriage that he has not agreed to. He doesn't even know. Okay, okay. Let, me, let, me, let, me, let me respond to what you're saying, Herb. Let me respond to this. Um, <clears throat> you're raising a very interesting question about the word Inui, actually. 
the way I presented it, I mean, the way I presented it was that he, see, he sees and he takes, and he's not in love with her yet. After the fact, that's all right, after the fact, after the fact, he falls in love with her. Um, that I, I still maintain that as a good reading. But your point, the larger point that Inui actually is not just rape. I think that is true. Inui probably means in the biblical narratives, and not just the narratives, even in the legal sections, can mean a sexual act which is inappropriate in some sense. It doesn't only have to be rape. In fact, Leah says about herself, Leah says about herself, since you mentioned Leah, when she has, when her first child is born, she says, Ra Hashem be on ye. God has seen my, my suffering on ye, which is certainly related to Inui. And, and the point is that from Leah's standpoint, it's Inui in the sense that from her perspective, she's married to this guy. And a short while afterwards, some other woman's moving in, her own sister's moving in on the person she's married to. There's no evidence in the Chumash. From Leah's perspective, she's married to Jacob. What does she know from all the, the other stuff? She probably doesn't know anything about it. She, the father determines who marries whom. My father married me to this guy, Jacob. And then a little short while later, he has a second wife whom he loves more than me. And that she calls Inui. So Inui doesn't have to be only rape. Inui is a relationship, a, a, a sexual relationship which is inappropriate. I think that probably is right, actually. The question over here, this was one of the, the fights that between uh, Sternberg and the others about Dina, to what extent we see this as rape. My reading of it is, and I still hold this way, that fundamentally it is rape, and it's the seeing and the taking, which, which moves me in that direction. It is certainly the case that there's a complicating factor after the fact and that is another big difference between Amnon on one hand and Shechem on the other. The Torah has gone out of its way, it strikes me, to present Shechem, given the circumstances, in the best possible light. People make mistakes, and the question is, is that can you actually ever change that? And we absolutely have no idea what Dina thinks, for starters. So I still maintain that. The larger point you make is that, of course, the story is different than Amnon, that's for certain, and that Inui often, or some places, doesn't mean rape, is also true. But I, having said all that, and having agreed with you, I still think that in this particular story, it does mean that, and that's because of the seeing and the taking. He's a Canaanite, it's what the Canaanites do, it's what the Egyptians do, it's the primal sin, the Torah compares the behavior, and then we have the surprising story, because the, the storyteller has a surprising story in which the characters are never exactly what you expect. We expected more out of Jacob, and we expected, um, we expected less out of Shechem. And that's true of Yaakov, and it's true of Shechem, and it's true of the brothers as well. That on one hand, we understand their anger. They want to avenge their sister, the Inui. But on the other hand, they're going to take extreme measures, which cannot be, certainly cannot be fully justified in my view. Can they be partially justified? Can they be not justified? Can they be partially understood perhaps? Can they be really fully justified? I don't think the Torah thinks so. Jacob certainly didn't think so. So, but we'll get all there. What makes this a great story is it's, it's a very complicated story 
from all perspectives. And then what we're trying to get to is, and we'll get to Amun and Tamar also, and all the many connections and the differences. But then the question still is at the, at the heart, what is at the heart of the story? So that we'll get to next week. What's at the heart of the story? Um, uh, is it I think possible? I just have to stop at this point. Um, we'll pick this up next week. Wendy, you want to get the last word? Go ahead. Uh, I see uh, an issue with Jacob not saying anything when the boys make their suggestion as to, you know, yes, we'll, his, they're, they're full of guile suggestion. I think he sees right through it. Because after all, he had used the same similar kind of guile on his father. That his mother, had, had, he had kind of, he didn't say silent than that. He okay, so let me, let me, let me, let me, let me just ask him to respond to what this I think that this, it, it may have gone further than he thought it, it Right. Was, but his response to that, make the following observation, then I have to stop. We have, actually have another 12 o'clock, we have this whole thing on the Megillah. Should be very interesting. Uh, the, um, the Ramban has the question. The Ramban is a simple question, which is, are you telling me that Jacob is willing to become one nation with these Canaanites? That's the offer they're making. You will stay with us and we'll become one nation. The Ramban says, how is this possible? He makes enormous effort to separate from Esau. He knows what the covenant's about. He knows that, he knows that, he knows that, Yacht, that Abraham insisted that Yisrael cannot marry a Canaanite. Note that Esau was disqualified because of the Canaanites. So how is it possible that Yaakov would think that we can be one people with the Canaanites? That's impossible. That's the Ramban's question. So the Ramban has his point of view, which is along the lines that Wendy is suggesting. And that is, he thinks perhaps, he, he suspects maybe they speak in guile. Maybe he thinks that They'll simply uh, immobilize Shem and Hamar, run into the house, take Dina, and run away. Maybe that's what he's thinking. They're going to save Dina, and we can't become one people, and we'll escape. He doesn't think they're going to, says the Ramban, he didn't think they would massacre the entire town. Because and that is, Jacob the red line. He says that's not right. And he says it later on. Uh, that's the only is, reason he gives. That's the Ramban. That's what the Ramban is raising this question, and the question is a great question. It is inconceivable, says the Ramban, that Jacob would agree to become one nation with the Canaanites. How's that possible? That's what I think is true. I mean, to me, it, I agree. It's not possible. So what is it? What is it? So the Ramban has a suggestion. He didn't think they'd go that far. We'll have to pick this up next week because I have to stop at this point. Noah, do you want to say something? Sure, sure. Noah. Yes. So first of all, thank you, Rabbi Silver, for a wonderful class and to everyone here for participating in our learning community and also keeping things civil. Um, I know it's a, a difficult story, understandably so. Um, as Rabbi Silver mentioned, uh, we are going to be having another two-hour event um, focused on the Megillah at noon Eastern, which is currently 6 p.m. Israel time for those of you in the Holy Land. Um, and that is going to be with Rabbi Silver, Dr. Malka Simkovich, Dr. Mike Gottlieb, and then after they each present, uh, Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Zukir will moderate a conversation between the three. Um, I already put Rabbi Silver's email in the chat, uh, so you can email him 
between classes. And I also provided a link so you can register for our noon event if you are not yet registered. Uh, but I do look forward to seeing many of you again uh, in <laughs> about a half hour, um, a little bit more than that. And I hope that uh, if we don't see you then or at another Drisha event this week, that we see you again next week and everyone be well. Thank you.